Well, join with me as we turn in our Bibles together to the book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible, and we'll begin at the end of chapter 26. Our ongoing study of the first book in the Bible continues today as we see yet again God's promise passing from one generation to the next. We've spent many weeks in recent months considering God's grace towards the patriarch Abraham. And last week, we thought about God's grace in the life of Abraham's son Isaac, And starting this week, we'll begin to consider God's grace in the life of Abraham's grandson named Jacob. And like so many portions of this Old Testament narrative, the story and scene that comes to us this morning is quite long. It's full of truth. And where we want to begin is in verse 34 of chapter 26 and read all the way through verse 40 of chapter 27. As we look at what is a well-known scene to many if you grew up in the church, this scene of Jacob deceiving and receiving as he grabs the blessing through deception. So let us hear God's word with earnestness and care as he speaks to us through his perfect truth. When Esau was 40 years old, he took Judith, the daughter of Biri, the Hittite, and Basemoth, the daughter of Elan the Hittite, and they made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. When Isaac was old and his eyes were dim so that he could not see, he called Esau, his older son, and said to him, My son. And he answered, Here I am. Isaac said, Behold, I am old, and I do not know the day of my death. Now then, take your weapons, your quiver and your bow, and go out to the field and hunt game for me. And prepare for me delicious food, such as I love, and bring it to me that I may eat, and that my soul may bless you before I die. Now Rebekah was listening when Isaac spoke to his son Esau. So when Esau went to the field to hunt game and bring it, Rebekah said to her son Jacob, I hear your father speak, I heard your father speak to your brother Esau. Bring me game and prepare for me delicious food that I may eat it and bless you before the Lord before I die. Now therefore, my son, obey my voice as I command you. Go to the flock and bring me two young goats, so that I may prepare delicious food for your father such as he loves. And you shall bring it to your father to eat, so he may bless you before he dies. But Jacob said to Rebekah his mother, Behold, my brother Esau is a hairy man, and I'm a smooth man. Perhaps my father will feel me. And I shall seem to be mocking him and bring a curse upon myself and not a blessing. His mother said to him, Let your curse be on me, my son. Only obey my voice and go bring them to me. So he went and took them and brought them to his mother. And his mother prepared delicious food, such as his father loved. Then Rebekah took his best garments of Esau, her older son, which were with her in the house, and she put them on Jacob, her younger son. And the skins of the young goat she put on his hands and on the smooth part of his neck. And she put the delicious food and the bread, which she had prepared, into the hand of her son Jacob. So he went into his father and said, My father. And Isaac said, Here I am. Who are you, my son? Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. I've done as you told me. Now sit up. Eat of my game that your soul may bless me. But Isaac said to his son, How is it that you have found it so quickly, my son? And he answered, Because the Lord your God granted me success. 
Then Isaac said to Jacob, Please come near that I may feel you, my son, to know whether you are really my son Esau or not. So Jacob went near to his father, who felt him and said, The voice is Jacob's voice, but the hands are the hands of Esau. And he did not recognize him because his hands were hairy like his brother Esau's hands. So he blessed him and he said, Are you really my son Esau? And Jacob answered, I am. Then he said, Bring it near to me that I may eat of my son's game and bless you. So he brought it near to him and he ate and he brought him wine and he drank. And then his father Isaac said to him, Come near and kiss me, my son. So he came near and kissed him. And Isaac smelled the smell of his garments and blessed him. And said, See, the smell of my son is as of the smell of the field that the Lord has blessed. May God give you the dew of heaven and of the fatness of the earth and plenty of grain and wine. Let peoples serve you and nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers and may your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you and blessed be everyone who blesses you. And as soon as Isaac had finished blessing Jacob, when Jacob had scarcely gone out from the presence of Isaac, his father, Esau, his brother, came in from his hunting. And he also prepared delicious food and brought it to his father. And he said to his father, Let my father arise and eat of his son's game that you may bless me. His father Isaac said to him, Who are you? And he answered, I'm your son, your firstborn, Esau. And Isaac trembled very violently and said, Who was it then that hunted game and brought it to me? And I ate it all before you came, and I have blessed him. Yes, and he shall be blessed. And as soon as Esau heard the words of his father, he cried out with an exceedingly great and bitter cry and said to his father, Bless me, even also, O my father. But Isaac said, Your brother came deceitfully. And he has taken away your blessing. Esau said, Is he not rightly named Jacob? For he has cheated me these two times. He took away my birthright. And behold, now he has taken away my blessing. And then he said, Have you not reserved a blessing for me? Isaac answered and said to Esau, Behold, I have made him lord over you. And all his brothers I have given to him for servants. And with grain and wine I have sustained him. What then can I do for you? My son. And Esau said to his father, Have you but one blessing, my father? Bless me, even me also, O father. And Esau lifted up his voice and wept. Then Isaac, his father, answered and said to him, Behold, away from the fatness of the earth shall your dwelling be, and away from the dew of heaven on high. By your sword you shall live, and you shall serve your brother. But when you grow restless, you shall break. His yoke from your neck. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Let's pray together. Father, we want wisdom from your spirit as we study passages like this to learn what we must. Help us, we pray, to see the essential truth of your faithfulness to your promise. Your ongoing steadfast love for sinful people like us listening and watching this day. Help us to hear without distraction. Give our minds attention and hearts affection for your kindness toward your covenant people. 
Help me to preach as you say I must, clearly and courageously, that Christ might be exalted. And we pray these things in his name. Amen. Several months ago, my wife Emily was watching one of these period drama television shows on PBS and she had roped me into watching with her and I lasted about a season and then I eventually gave up and I said, there's just no one to root for. You know, it was one of those shows where even the heroes you thought were good guys tend to exude these noticeable traits of wickedness and there was... There was nothing to root for, nor heroes, no heroines. It all just was bad, very bad. No one looked good. No one did good. And I was finally out of that whole endeavor. And in some ways, when you come to Genesis chapter 27 in the soap opera that is the life of Isaac's family, you would want to say, wouldn't you, no one looks good. I mean, where's the hero to root for here in God's covenant family? For example, one pastor that I Admire, he said this about our text No one looks good. Whether it's Isaac, the patriarch of the clan, who is a doddering, passive, abdicating old fool who only cares about a good meal, or Rebecca, who's a deceptive shrew who will scam her own husband to get her way, or Jacob, who's a schemer who can lie with a straight face to anyone, or Esau, who's a dopey good old boy who's always on the short end of the stick. He doesn't have a spiritually minded bone in his body. And I wonder if you think that's true. I'm sure many of you do. Or many of you might think such an analysis and conclusion is a little bit too strong. I sort of would be sympathetic to that view. Because I think there are a few redeemable traits in our chapter today. But I would want to underline and underscore that word, few. There aren't many things that you can point to in this passage that would call for any sort of godly example in the life of God's covenant people. And as I was reading the passage, children, you may have noticed that there was this word that almost showed up two dozen times in the text. Bless or blessing. In almost 45 verses, you get almost 24 times of bless or blessing because that's the theme of this passage. God's blessing that belongs to Jacob. And it's, of course, God's blessing that Jacob receives. But it's a benediction that he receives through deception, isn't it? You wouldn't have expected that he would have gotten the firstborn blessing in this way. You wouldn't have expected that Isaac would have given him the firstborn blessing. Certainly not in this way. And I do hope that that is even a note of encouragement for you. Because this text is altogether real, isn't it? It's a mercy of the Lord that he doesn't seek to hide his people's sin in his holy scriptures. In fact, what we see over and over in the Old Testament is God is pleased to call himself the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And then you learn the stories of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And you wonder, how can he be the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob? Such noticeable failures and shortcomings in all the patriarchs. But... The word of comfort for us is, which one of our households, which one of our lives would endure this kind of careful examination and come out unscathed? Because wouldn't any sort of probing of our hearts and souls reveal deep, dark secrets that would make anyone think, how could God call such an individual into his family? And yet, God does. 
He keeps bringing wretched, wicked, sinful people into his family to bring about his sovereign purposes. And that's really the main point that you need to see today. God's sovereign blessing is unstoppable. God's sovereign blessing is unstoppable. Kings can't stop it. Nations can't stop it. Satan can't stop it. You and I can't stop it. In a way that's a divine mystery to many of us, what God tends to do is work through righteous actions, unrighteous actions, even mixed actions, doesn't he? To bring about his sovereign purposes. And so we're going to see that in two parts together this morning. First, we're going to notice in the first 29 verses of chapter 27, Jacob's blessing. And then in the rest of the text, Isaac's cursing. Jacob's blessing and Isaac's cursing. And you might be listening or watching today and you wouldn't call yourself a Christian. Recognize that from the earliest book of the Bible, God's Word continually tells us there are only two ways that you can live. There are only two responses to God. You can be in one of two families. You can be like Jacob and receive God's blessing. You can be like Esau and receive God's cursing. And I wonder in which household you belong today. And we'll even see by the end how it is that anyone can receive the blessing that Jacob received without grabbing it through deception. So the text starts where we left off last week at the end of chapter 26. Remember chapter 26 is the only chapter in the entire Bible dedicated solely to the patriarch Isaac. And we saw once again, God provides and protects for the covenant family. By the end of the chapter, there's peace in the land. As Isaac has established these treaties with the Philistines and with Abimelech. But there's no peace in his home, is there? If you look again at verse 34, you see that Esau, when he was 40 years old, he took two Hittite wives. And verse 35 says, they made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. And it's here that we find out about Esau's bigamist tendencies because it's a bridge of sorts into the chapter we're getting ready to look at with this fighting over God's blessing. Because what you need to know about Genesis is over and over and over, we're meant to see that Esau, one, is not the chosen child of promise. Two, Esau is not worthy of the chosen blessing of God. We saw it as he gave away his birthright at the end of chapter 27 for a cup of beans. But here, in a way, you maybe haven't noticed for it's almost as though Esau's entire character brings together all of these evil characters we've seen already in Genesis. Just like Cain, he's the older brother who hates and wants to murder his younger brother. Just like Lamech, he's this evil man with multiple wives boasting in his own prowess. Even mentioned this recently that. Esau, two weeks ago we said this, was a mighty hunter before the Lord, just like Nimrod, who was a mighty hunter who built that great city of evil known as Babel. And it's it's as though all of that coalesces and comes together in one person, Esau. And we're meant to see that he's not worthy of this promised blessing. And yet, as we turn to consider Jacob's blessing, we see that Isaac still wants to give it. Esau. So you'll notice in verse 1 of chapter 27, we find out two essential things about Isaac, the first of which, he's blind. 
the text says, his eyes were so dim he could not see. And that's going to be important for a variety of different reasons we're going to see here in a second. Not least of which is when Jacob is coming in to work this kind of covert scheme of deception. What we're going to see Isaac do is try to test out the true identity of who's before him. Not, of course, with his sight, but with all his other senses. He's going to test it out through his hearing. He's going to test it out through his tasting. Test it out through his touching. Test it out even through his smelling. He can't see. But also he thinks... That he's on his deathbed. You see that in verse 2 as he speaks to Esau. Behold, I am old and I do not know the day of my death. And often as it is with people who are measuring their life in decades rather than, I'm sorry, in days rather than decades. He's trying to make a preparation for the end. He thinks his end is around the corner. He wants to set his affairs right and of certain immediate interest is giving the blessing to Esau, so he's old. Now what you want to know about chronology and timelines in Genesis is they're kind of hard to trace out with great degrees of certainty. To to figure out how old Isaac was at this point, you'd actually have to go to the end of the book and work your way back because we get all these dates related to Isaac's grandson, Joseph. But we can be relatively certain that Isaac is somewhere between the age of 117 and potentially as old as 137 here in this passage. And why that's interesting is it may bring a different color of texture to your understanding of Jacob and Esau, these twin boys. Because what that would mean is Jacob and Esau are at least 57 years old at this point, and potentially as old as 77 years old at this point. And... Father Isaac wants to bless son Esau. So you'll see if you just scan your eyes through verse 3 and 4, he calls Esau into his tents and says, yes, go get that great game that I love. Make that special food that I crave so often so that I may bless you. And it's almost as though we're meant to see right from the outset of chapter 27 that Isaac isn't just blind physically. He's blind spiritually. He can't see that Esau is unworthy of the blessing. He can't see, he can't remember God's divine revelation that came in chapter 25 that said the older Esau will serve the younger Jacob. Therefore, he can't see that it was his divine duty to bless Jacob, not Esau. And yet here is Isaac continuing to move forward with his planned blessing of Esau. Because he loved his food so much. Well, the tension ramps up, doesn't it? Because just around the corner on the other side of the tent, verse 5 tells us that Rebecca is listening in. She hears what's going on. And she begins to hatch a scheme of her own. Because if you scan your eyes through verse 5 through 10, you'll see that the ongoing deception that we're about to see is really all Rebecca's conniving. It really all is Rebecca's scheming. Jacob is just a willing participant in what his mother Rebecca is driving forward. And if you wanted to get an idea of how divided, potentially fractured, uh, this home was, uh, the author gives us a simple way of seeing it. Because you'll see in verse 1 and 2, when Isaac calls Esau, he talks to him as my son. And then in verse 6 and following, when Rebekah is talking to Jacob, she calls him my son. 
And it reminds us of chapter 25 where we were told that Esau was daddy's boy and Jacob was mama's boy. There's this family favoritism that seemingly has fractured the family. And the scheme's pretty simple, isn't it? Rebecca tells Jacob, go kill these goats. I can make Isaac's famous dish, not from game, but I can make it out of goats. But Jacob sees a problem in seizing the blessing that way. Notice verse 11 and 12. He says, Behold, my brother Esau is a hairy man. I'm a smooth man. And perhaps my father will feel me. And I shall seem to be mocking him and bring a curse upon myself and not a blessing. Jacob is saying, hey, our physical disposition is so different. Even though he can't see me, he'll know it's me and not Esau. And not just that, I will then not only be mocking my father, but I'm going to get his cursing instead of his blessing. And the original hearers of Genesis, they, they would have well known how much a curse would have come upon such an individual. Because they would have just heard God's law and the Mosaic Covenant, which included a command and a declaration, really, isn't it? Cursed is anyone who misleads the blind. And here's Jacob and Rebecca tending, intending to mislead the blind. But Rebecca is willing to take all the responsibility, isn't she? Look at verse 13. Let your curse be on me, my son. Only obey my voice and go bring them to me. So off Jacob goes. He gets the goat. She prepares the meal. Rebecca puts Esau's clothes on Jacob. She puts these goat skins on his arms and around his neck to make him feel hairy. And this is Operation Get the Blessing that they begin to enact. And some of you might be like me. You grew up loving spy thrillers and spy novels and spy movies. You know, I grew up in my adolescence reading these books that were captivating. You know, authors like Ian Fleming, Robert Ludlum, John Le Carre. You know, these great spy masters and their stories that captivated me. Often turned into these movies that many have found captivating. If you've ever read such a story or seen such a movie, you know that invariably there's always these moments of tension. Is the covert scheme going to go undiscovered or discovered? Is the covert operation going to be successful or be an outright failure? If you know what I'm talking about with that kind of tension, you, you, you need to import all of that into this text. Because we know, of course, how it ends. But even in this moment, here in verse 17, when he's getting ready to initiate Operation Get the Blessing, it's completely uncertain if he's going to be successful. And even as we see Isaac engage with Jacob, Isaac is clearly uncertain if the one before him is actually Esau. So he begins an inquisition, doesn't he? Jacob enters the tent. He says, my father, look at Isaac's question, verse 18. Who are you, my son? And surely this would have been a normal question for Esau to ask. He's blind. He can't see anyone who comes into his tent. So anyone who arrives into his tent, he probably is always asking, who are you? But there's something here that causes him to expect it to be his son. Who are you, my son? Jacob begins his series of lies, doesn't he, by saying, I'm Jacob, your firstborn. But look at the end of verse 19. You want to see this urgency, almost like desperate action in Jacob's action. He says, I've done as you told me. Now sit up and eat of my game that your soul may bless me. He knows Esau's on the way back. 
So Jacob needs to initiate this scheme and get it done as fast as possible. So he's saying, Dad, come on, I've got the food. It's time to eat, and it's time to give the blessing because I need to get out of here before Esau arrives. But Esau, I'm sorry, Isaac has another question. Verse 20, how is it that you found the food so quickly? Right? It normally takes Esau quite a while to find this game, to cook this dish that Isaac loves so much. And notice what Jacob is willing to say at the end of verse 20. Because the Lord your God granted me success. And kids, I think we're right to say here that Jacob just broke the third commandment without ever having heard the third commandment. He's taken the Lord's name in vain. He's willing to invoke upon himself the divine blessing of Yahweh as though this scheme of deception has this divine sanction. As one commentator would say, he uses a deity to cover up for his duplicity. And that's probably true here as well. So, Isaac's tested him out with his hearing, hasn't he? But now he wants to test him out with his touching. Look at verse 21. Please come near that I may feel you, my son. Because he knows, hey, the voice is Jacob's. But the hands, as he feels his son, were the hands of, of Esau. And so Jacob is working in his deception. Isaac is seemingly becoming more convinced. And then he says, notice in verse 24, Are you really my son Esau? So you have to recognize that this is a big deal, this blessing given to the firstborn. Isaac is doing everything possible to make sure the blessing goes to who he wants the blessing to go to, namely Esau. He's unconvinced. He's tested out it. He's tested out the issue by hearing, by touching. Now he wants to test it out by tasting Because Esau is this famous game chef, isn't he? Look at verse 25. Bring it near to me, this food that you've eaten, that I may eat of my son's game and bless you. But Isaac's palate isn't nearly as reformed as he thinks it is, is he? He can't tell the difference between Rebekah's domesticated goat and Esau's wild game. There's one more test. The smell test. He tells Jacob to come near, to kiss him, so that Isaac might smell him. Well, you see verse 27, Jacob came near and kissed his father, and Isaac smelled the smell of his garments and blessed him and said, so Isaac is now convinced. All the senses have tried out the test. All the senses now agree that this is indeed Esau, and so he says at the beginning or the end of verse 27, see the smell of my son is as the smell of a field that the Lord has blessed. So the blessing now is going to be given to Jacob not Esau, and it's a blessing that has three parts. And I want you to see how these three parts are complete, that they're comprehensive in what they are declaring to Jacob. The first is the promise of riches. Look at verse 28. May God give you the dew of heaven and of the fatness of the earth and plenty of grain and wine. Jacob is never going to want, he's going to be One who abounds in food, abounds in wealth. It's a promise of riches, but it's also, secondly, a promise of rule. And if you've been careful to pay attention in Genesis, you hear an echo of Genesis 25, 23. The older shall serve the younger. God's word to Rebekah and Isaac. What you see here is the promise of rule coming to fruition in verse 29. Let peoples serve you and nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers, and may your mother's sons bow down to you. 
And like a cord of three strands is not easily broken, so is a cord of three promises making up this firm blessing. It's not just about riches and rule, it's also about recompense and reward. Verse 29 tells us, Cursed be everyone who curses you, and blessed be everyone who blesses you. And again, if you're a good student of Genesis, you've heard that before a couple of times. For the first time in Genesis 12, verse 3, to Jacob's grandfather Abraham, that very same promise included within the Abrahamic covenant now goes as it was supposed to, to Jacob. But who would have expected this is the way that Jacob gets his blessing? So students, think with me for a few minutes. How would you evaluate Jacob's actions in this text? Some of you might know, some of you might even be convinced of a strain of thought that says, well, the only real bad character in this story is Isaac. He's governed by his belly. You may have noticed as we read the text three times, it talked about this delicious food that he loves to eat. As long as he's satisfied with the table fare before him, anything really goes. It's Isaac that is the one who's at fault. Because Jacob and Rebekah, they're acting on divine righteousness. They know that that promise belongs to Jacob. And so they're totally righteous. Godly even in, in grabbing the promise, lest it go to one it shouldn't. I think that's a little bit of a stretch. Certainly if you read it on balance with what's to come in Jacob's life. What you see is that this deception is going to define his life. Strife, ongoing strife in this family and his family to come will define his life as well. It's why he's going to say near the end of the book in Genesis 47, he says, few and evil have been the days of the years of my life. Noticeably different from that of his grandfather Abraham, the man of faith and the man of obedience. Not just that, when we get to the deception of Jacob that's going to show up in a few chapters, there are these unique echoes when His family member Laban deceives him by giving him Leah to be Jacob's wife, not Rachel, there inside a tent. These echoes, it's almost like in the same way Jacob deceived his father, so now he is deceived by the wife that he gets, the older, not the younger. Nevertheless, what we can say is that God's sovereign blessing cannot be stopped, can it? Isaac can't stop it. Esau can't stop it. It belongs to Jacob, and God has not given it to Jacob. So this is Jacob's blessing. Quickly then, we see the last few verses, the last section with Esau's cursing. Because the tension in the text isn't done, right? It may may seem that, hey, it's all sorted, it's all completed, but Esau hasn't arrived yet. And so the question is, is Jacob going to be able to get out of the tent in time? And the answer to that question is barely. Look at verse 30. As soon as Isaac had finished blessing Jacob, when Jacob had scarcely gone out from the presence of Isaac, his father, Esau, his brother, came in from his hunting. So if you were a Hollywood movie director and screenwriter, you would write this in such a way as almost the minute that Jacob walks out of one side of the tent, Esau comes in the other side of the tent. And as he comes in, he says, my father. And what does Isaac say? Who are you, my son? And Esau answers, I am your son, your firstborn son Esau. And you just want to know the exterior tone, gestures that marked Isaac in the next moment. Because he's starting to realize, isn't he, that he's been hoodwinked. Because look at verse 33. Then Isaac trembled very violently. 
the Hebrew says something more like he trembled a great trembling exceedingly. Almost as though he's shaking physically in his seat. As he asked, who was it then that brought me the game? Who was it then that got the blessing I just gave? Esau knows exactly what's going on, doesn't he? He knows that it's Jacob. Isaac quickly confirms that it's Jacob. And so Esau himself is one who's going to exceedingly cry out. You see in verse 34, an exceedingly great and bitter cry came out from Esau. Bless me, even me also, my father. You wonder, don't you, if that kind of blood-curdling cry was something that struck Rebekah's ears in a tent not too far away. If Jacob heard his brother cry out with such agony and anguish because of what he had done. Exceeding trembling from Isaac, exceeding crying from Esau, it's altogether this lamentable scene is he not rightly named Jacob, this heel grabber? Esau, Esau goes on and says, so, so bless me, Father. He still wants a blessing. He's earnest for it. Can you give me anything? Have you given everything away to Jacob? And notice Isaac says, yeah, I've basically given it all away to Jacob. Verse 37, behold, I've made him Lord over you. And all his brothers I have given to him for servants. And with grain and wine I have sustained him. And what about this? As Esau would have heard it for the first time, what then can I do for you? my son. Surely you can imagine that kind of anguish that Esau must have felt in this moment. This great expectation, this hope of celebration, the blessing is soon going to come. Then he arrives into the tent and realizes the exact opposite is actually what he's about to receive. Because just as Jacob got three words of blessing, what you essentially see in Isaac's blessing of Esau is three words of cursing. First is the promise of homelessness. Look at verse 39 as Isaac gives him some kind of word. Isaac says, Behold, away from the fatness of the earth shall your dwelling be, and away from the dew of heaven on high. There's no riches for Esau. There's no fertility of the earth for him to partake. And you wonder if Esau is wondering as he hears those phrases and words for the first time, this doesn't sound like a blessing. Surely it's not a blessing, is it? It's really more a prophetic statement. A series of oracles about what's going to come. This promise of restlessness leads to the promise of service. Verse 40, by your sword you shall live and you shall serve your brother. So again, that divine word of Genesis 25-23, it's coming to pass. The older shall serve the younger. Esau, you will serve Jacob. That would have certainly sounded like a curse in that ancient eastern culture. Not just homelessness and service, but also restlessness. The end of verse 40. But when you grow restless, you shall break his yoke from your neck. And that happened way down the line in the Old Testament books. It's actually in the reign of King Solomon that Esau's family, Edom, finally breaks out from under the yoke of Israelite rule. This is Esau's cursing. This was Jacob's blessing. And I hope you do see how God's sovereign plan, God's sovereign purpose cannot be stopped. It can't be thwarted. He will bring about His divine word even through unexpected, perhaps even unrighteous actions of His people. I've always had something of a fascination with the United States history of its space race with the Soviet Union 
probably all began when I first watched this movie, Apollo 13, as a, as a young boy. Still is a soundtrack I listen to with relative frequency when I want to think about bigger and greater things like going to the moon. And I came across this article last month that was written in the Houston Chronicle because it's the 50th year anniversary of the Apollo 13 mission, which many of you know is this rather infamous and an ill-fated mission that it was aborted on its way to the moon as two days after the launch, this oxygen tank ruptured in the service module and they had to turn around and make it safely home and all kinds of dramatic flair. And as this article was reminiscing about that ill-fated mission, it was titled, Lessons from a Successful Failure. And NASA used that language with Apollo 13 about a successful failure because even in spite of it not reaching the moon, certainly not landing on the moon. It nevertheless provided all kinds of lessons for how to do space exploration better and increase the fruitfulness of future missions. And you could almost come to Genesis chapter 27 and write out as a title heading for this chapter, Lessons from a Successful Failure. Because certainly at one level, it's a total failure. On all parties involved, I think, yet when God is at work, What we see once again is success in His sovereign plan is guaranteed. So what lessons might we be able to learn then from this successful failure? What lessons really should we learn without squeezing out things we ought not learn? Well, I think there are two simple things I want to encourage you in as we begin to close. The first of which is treasure God's blessing. You can say a lot of things about each character in this passage. The degree to which they're righteous, the degree to which they're unrighteous. But you can't question the degree to which each treasures the blessing, can you? Isaac thinks he's getting ready to die. He's desperate to pass the blessing along. So he treasures it. It's important. It's significant. Of course, Jacob and Rebekah seem to treasure it as well. Important enough to, as Jacob says, mock a husband and a father. To get it. To gain it. And does not even Esau himself treasure the blessing in his own way, which Hebrews 12 tells us is a rather worldly way, but he treasures it nonetheless. As he cries, do you not have a blessing also for me? Bless me, even me also, he keeps saying, O my Father. I wonder how much you treasure God's blessing. This promise that's offered Even to you and me today, this promise that belonged to Jacob, this promise that belonged to Isaac, this promise that belonged, first of all, in this covenant word to Abraham. Do you treasure it? Do you long for it? Do you pursue it? Do you pray for it? Do you delight in it? Do you revel in it? Parents, are you eagerly wanting to pass the blessing of God on to your children through discipline, instruction, prayer, and care, and life together? Children, I hope that you're not presuming upon the blessing. Hebrews 12 again tells us that's essentially what Esau is doing. He thinks it's no big deal and even when he wants it, it's too late to get it. And he wants it really just for worldly reasons, the text seems to say, not for the true reality of deeper communion with God. Do you privilege the blessing or presume upon it? Do you treasure the blessing? Because what's fascinating to me is... What this text tells us about Isaac and Rebekah's relationship. Do you remember just a few chapters back, chapter 25, when they get married? There's this picture 
of incredible love and affection and even almost adoration between this young bride and this young groom. And quickly, that kind of bliss is interrupted, isn't it, by this barrenness that strikes Rebecca. And do you remember what Isaac and Rebecca did then? They together pray to God for the blessing of children. Yet in our text, while there may be treasuring of God's blessing, there's no praying for God's blessing. There's no listening for God's blessing, resting on God's blessing, conversing even about God's blessing. The text is construed in such a way that it almost seems like they're separated in different tents, living different lives, loving different sons. So yes, treasure God's blessing, but much better is what they didn't do. Secondly, trust God's promise that He will bring about His blessing in His own way, in His own time. He doesn't need our strategies. He doesn't need our schemes. He doesn't need our ways. He doesn't need our wisdom in order to bring His promise to pass. Certainly, He uses us. But He delights to use us as we wait on Him, as we're patient for Him, as we pray to Him to bring it to pass. Treasure God's blessing. Trust God's promise. These are lessons from a successful failure. And of course, don't you know that treasuring God's blessing and trusting God's promise is little more than looking to the Lord Jesus Christ, who himself is God's blessing, who himself is God's promise. This is little more than the boiled down essential matter of true Christianity, treasuring Christ, trusting in Christ. Because how is it that you and I, people as we said at the beginning, if our lives were evaluated under a microscope, would reveal all kinds of deep, dark secrets. How is it that people such as us can even be welcomed into God's family and receive His blessing? Well, because of what the true offspring of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Jesus Christ, has done. Because He, of course, came and took the form of a servant, a human. He was perfectly obedient. And do you see the echoes, even, of Christ's work in our chapter? Just like Jacob, Christ was clothed in clothes that were not his own. The Roman soldiers put clothes on him as they crucified him. A shroud of Joseph of Arimathea was laid on him as he buried him. And did not even Jesus Christ himself utter the words of Rebekah, your curse be upon me. That through trusting in him, faith and repentance, he was cursed that we might be blessed. It's the cursing of Esau that Christ took That we might get the blessing of Jacob. So God's sovereign purposes and God's sovereign blessing. They always come to pass. They always come to fruition. They keep coming to realization. Through none other than Jesus Christ. As you treasure him and trust in him. You too will live a life. Of unexpected. Ever abundant blessing. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that you would give us more grace. That you would give us more humility. That you would give us greater joy in Jesus Christ as we want to cling to the blessing that is ours by faith in your Son. The blessing of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that you continue to offer to us if we would but treasure and trust in your Son. So help us to not be full of guile and deception. Help us not to be full of impatience and grasping, but instead wait on your sovereign plan, your sovereign blessing to pass as you decree it must and you decide it will. 
in our own lives as we trust and treasure you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.